Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today I'm going to go ahead and go first. Sarah and I have been sharing vampire facts per episode because I revealed that I don't care for vampiric lore. And it was getting a little silly, I think. So I I went ahead and decided to do an episode about where revenants go. And revenants are ones who return for revenge. And they include some forms of vampires and they include a lot of other things as well so we're going to stop with the vampire facts and we're just going to do an episode i love that so some vampire facts are just really dumb oh they're it's fascinating what people will do to try to prevent or manage vengeful beings yes so i'm going to do when i go over this topic, a sort of overview of what a revenant is, different ways that revenant myths have incorporated or been incorporated into humanity, and also why it's thought that revenant myths are so pervasive, because they can be found in societies worldwide. Now, and in the past, and in use in media, in oral traditions, in artwork. It's a very human thought process, and it's a thought process that's important to humans, clearly because it's so pervasive, as I see it. And then I'm going to go over some different examples of revenants. Most of these examples are not in English, I'm going to mispronounce some of them. I've tried to look up pronunciations. I apologize in advance. I will do my best and also fully accept any corrections with thanks from Sarah or anybody. So a revenant, one who returns for revenge. They usually return from the dead or can be a person that returns from a very long absence. They might be an animated corpse. They might be a spirit or a ghost, or they may actually still be a living person but they manifest revenant behaviors at certain times of day, certain times of year, certain ceremonies. That's kind of a gray area. As I said before, revenant myths are pervasive. They're ubiquitous in humanity worldwide. Not every culture has revenant myths, but pretty much every region of the world has had one at some point somewhere. Some revenant myths are a blend of indigenous belief and then imports from colonizers. Some are shared in larger regions than just a single country. Some are developed independently from each other, but are also similar. So there are vampiric myths worldwide. Some are obvious blends of European influence or uh, from something like, say, chattel slavery and importing human beings and treating them as goods. But some of them just develop independently are very similar. Revenants are always based on a living human or a previously living human. If a being is considered entirely supernatural, even if they're interested in vengeance, they're technically not a revenant. They're something else. Revenant myths are still super popular for storytelling. I mean, you can look at things like the twilight phenomenon 
and zombie fascination in our Western societies. Uh, they're super popular as ideas and concepts. And I'll talk a little bit about why it's thought there's, they've been sort of embraced as a worthwhile story or a worthwhile idea to hold after I describe a little bit more about revenants. Revenant behaviors can include unfocused revenges. A revenant may need a living person's help to rest in peace, so they may attack people because they need the people to help them. A revenant may be stuck in a state of rage and it just be sort of abstract. They may also wreak the type of havoc that led to their own death. Focused revenges from revenants include things like the originator of the revenant may control them. So that's like a sorcerer or a witch controlling a, an animated corpse or a ghost for revenge. The revenant may seek revenge on those involved in their death, or they may haunt the location of their death. Why do we have revenant stories? Revenant stories tend to come out of an incomplete understanding of or an attempt to explain processes like death or people being buried alive so rising from the grave because they weren't actually dead but they seemed pretty dead at the time they were buried decomposition processes swelling bodies swell but that makes them look sort of well fed in comparison to maybe somebody that died of tuberculosis and then suddenly they look plumper that would be shocking if you didn't understand swelling as part of a decomposition process. Oh, Blood. wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's, a lot of these are very logical. Mm -hmm. uh, they're observation-based. And then the conclusion that's drawn is, I mean, I'm not going to say fully inaccurate just because I'm sort of agnostic about a lot of supernatural stuff. But we have enough understanding now to know that a lot of people would view these normal processes as signs of someone rising from the dead. And that's not likely what was going on. Yeah. I mean, we, we are, we're puzzle, we're puzzle solving people. Like that's how our brain works is we're always trying to solve the puzzle. So, I mean, even though it's not logical to us now, it was then because they didn't have a scientific understanding of what was going on. Yeah. Blood can ooze from the mouth of a corpse because a lot of, you know, if you have blood in your stomach or lungs and then you swell, it can be squeezed out. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> yeah. Post-mortem lividity makes people look sort of flushed or ruddy. It can. And so that makes them look a little more alive than they did when they first died. Deceased people are often full of gases and those gases can come out the mouth and be forced through the larynx and make sounds, or they can actually come out as farts, which you would assume only a living person would do, but sometimes corpses fart. Ooh. And <laughs> then there's the growth, and I'm making air quotes because it seems to be something that I like to do in this non-visual medium. <laughs> but at least you tell us. Yeah. So growth <laughs> of hair, teeth, and nails post-mortem. Skin and fleshy parts of your body retract and shrink after death. And so your gums, your nail cuticles and nail beds, and your scalp can retract and expose more of your nails, teeth, or hair than were previously there. 
And so it looks like your hair or your teeth or your nails have grown, even though you're dead. It's also yeah. in, incomplete or inaccurate understanding of disease, how diseases spread, and then specific diseases such as tuberculosis, pneumonic, bubonic plague, possibly porphyria, which is uh, a blood disorder that involves a buildup of iron and it can involve serious mental disturbances. And then also rabies. Uh, you can have light sensitivity with rabies, possibly also garlic sensitivity. I read that somewhere, but there was no explanation. And I don't know that exposing rabid people to garlic is something that's been heavily studied. So I put a question mark next to that one. Brain alterations. And then bats and wolves as carriers for rabies. So that's a familiar trope, I guess, with vampiric lore. Those are sort of the, we didn't or don't quite understand these concepts, and so we go ahead and ascribe a thought process and a logical conclusion to them that might be inaccurate. But there's also emotional manifestation. People miss their loved ones and hope they return, even if it's in a way that's vengeful or considered a punishment to the living. They might also have a fundamental fear of them coming back. I've got some stories of specific revenants that were just too mean to die. <laughs> so if they're too mean to die, they're going to come back. And then there's also trying to overcome a fear of dying through a belief in the undead. You know, you're not really going to die because you might come back as a vampire or a zombie or a particular type of ghost. You know, that's not something I ever considered. Like, that can be a, a fear of dying as well, is a belief that you're, yeah, I mean, you won't really go away. Your body will, but you'll still be around. And if someone decides to do something about it, well, then you get to come back. <laughs> There's also political components to a lot of Revenant stories. Dracula was a rich guy eating peasants. You know, and then there's a lot of cautionary tales that lead to revenants arising, including things like suicide or prohibition of suicide or vanity or not adhering to particular social or religious practices. There are also ways to explain what was at the time or still might be unexplainable, high infant and maternal mortality, things like harbingers of disease or misfortune. It's a way to sort of, or in hindsight, look for patterns for disease transmission or a family being cursed. Again, I'm making air quotes. It also explains unexplainable deaths. You know, a revenant did it. It's probably also a way to make excuses for deaths that were intentionally caused, some murders. I didn't murder them, a revenant did it. I didn't kill my kid, it was some suck, you know, blood-sucking monster that prefers children. And then it's ways to explain things like schizophrenia, arrhythmomania, obsessive compulsive disorder, well even depression, bipolar disorders. And then it can also be a result of mass hysteria. Humans are great at mass hysteria. We, uh, when involved, seem to just love it and we love stories about it too. And so things like vampire hunts in, the, in Europe and in American colonies, including some killings of living people or hunting for corpses. 
So there are, were ways developed to determine what corpse in a graveyard was a revenant. And it includes things like a virgin boy riding either a white horse or a black horse, depending on where you were, the color of the horse that was needed was supposed to change. And when the horse stops, that's a revenant. Oh, that's strange. Yeah, it's, so it's a way of almost like community building in a very peculiar and often destructive way. Yeah, people are kind of weird. <laughs> they can be. That's for sure. I'd say as another weird person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, effects on humanity. What are the effects of remnant myths on human societies? Revenant prevention practices include influencing burial practices, honoring ancestors through offerings to the dead. Although I want to be clear, that's not the only reason people might offer goods or food or whatever to their ancestors. There are a lot of cultures that offer that as a way to continue to participate lovingly with their family members that have passed away versus trying to appease them so they don't come back and cause you harm. It's also react it changes our reactions to sickness or overall superstitions. Uh, let me ask you this one. Uh, what is the reason that you have been given for people when they spill salt, taking a pinch and throwing it behind their shoulder? Oh, for luck. That's what I was always told. And I was told it is to blind the witches that might be following you. Oh, interesting. So... Yeah, salt is sacred, um, and it's part of the sea, and so you... You don't want to waste salt, so when you take some, when you spill some salt, you need to take some of the salt you spilled and um, throw it over your left shoulders for luck, because you spilled salt. And that makes a lot more sense than blinding witches that might be following you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I, you know, I have heard that explanation. There are probably other explanations too. Right. And so that is a superstition that endures. Even, you know, even luck as a superstition that endures or blinding witches or whatever. I even posted on our Twitter recently, I found a four-leaf clover. You know, that's a superstition. It's just a mutant clover. But it's fun to find. Because it's supposed to be lucky. Uh, the house that we were just in, like, she had tons of four-leaf clovers. Like, I don't know where she was finding them, but they were apparently everywhere. Either that or she was picking four-leaf clovers on a nuclear site. Oh, no. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of that is cultural. Like, it's a human, cultural, regional thing to think that's lucky. Not all re revenant prevention behaviors have been abandoned, but with better understanding of death, disease, decomposition, and with improved access to healthcare, some revenant prevention behaviors have, have been abandoned. They've also been transformed into stories or films or games even these stories have changed over time to better incorporate contemporary knowledge. And they've also often eliminated the revenge component. If you think about zombie stories now, they're not you being used by a sorcerer to revenge them, you know, the sorcerer on people. They're just walking around looking for brains, causing problems. But let's go into the signs of a revenant. Uh, swollen corpses, blood on corpses, less decomposition than expected, things like experiences of the living, like sleep paralysis, comas, tuberculosis, arrhythmomania, infant mortality, maternal mortality, 
or disease spreading within a family, friend circle, village, or town of a recently deceased person. Now let's look at ways that people have used to deal with revenants, including preventing the creation of a revenant, appeasing the revenant, or stopping the revenant from operating. And these are not something that will work for every revenant. So if you're utilizing this as some sort of guideline for future efforts in dealing with revenants, uh, <laughs> thanks for taking us that seriously. But also this is not a definitive list and it's also not a universally applicable list. The decapitation of a corpse, and I mean specifically a corpse, they may, you know, people may first tear out the heart or put a coin in the mouth before the person, the corpse is decapitated. So not decapitating people who are living. Uh, application of holy water, burning a corpse, a letter of absolution from a bishop placed in the coffin of a corpse, burial with religious objects, sharp objects, stakes through the heart or head of a corpse, bricks in the mouth of a corpse, which didn't make any sense to me until I was looking more into vampires and I realized that eating flesh and eating blood would be difficult if you have a brick in your mouth. Makes sense. A burial. <laughs> yeah. It, I was like, bricks in the mouth? That's weird. Just to weigh down their head? No, it's to keep them from eating. I, <laughs> I don't know why that didn't occur to me until yesterday. Can't, can't they take the brick out, though? Uh, no, Sarah. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> they were found buried with it still in their mouth, so apparently the answer is no. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> uh, there are things like burial upside down, severing knee tendons, burial at a crossroads. Uh, sunlight is a modern revenant intervention. Salt and we were just having a discussion about salt. Salt is used in a few different cultures to deal with revenants. And there's also repellents. There's garlic, wild rose, or hawthorn. Those are three plants that come into play. Sterling silver, throwing mustard seeds, rice, millet, etc., on the ground to force counting. Sarah covered that as one of our first vampire facts and a real strange one. Yeah, that's why I talked about the, the count on Sesame Street. Yeah, and that counting issue shows up in more than one culture in terms of remnant stories. I'll, I'll go into it. Holy water, uh, consecrated ground. Most revenants cannot enter consecrated ground. Most revenants can't cross running water, which is interesting. And that shows up in Japan, that shows up in Europe. I don't know about zombies. They might be able to. Mirrors are sometimes a prevention tactic, like putting a mirror on your front door facing outward. And then not giving them permission to enter your home. I couldn't find a source for why that was the case, which I, just, I think is so strange. No, you can't come in. Oh, okay. Sorry to bother you. Like <laughs> I'm so hungry. But I'll go to the neighbor's house. They will surely let me in. Like they're encyclopedia salesmen or something. Like right. <laughs> so we'll go ahead and go into examples. So you can, I can kind of give you, Sarah, and everyone else an idea of how pervasive this is. This is not a definitive list, but it is a, an extensive list. And I'm going to start with flesh eaters 
and then move on to more ghostly apparitions. We have ghouls. They're a pre-Islamic Arabian myth and an undead flesh eater. Lilitu or Lilith is Babylonian and early Hebrew, subsisted on the blood of babies. She was banished from Eden. She was Adam's first wife and determined to be non-kosher because there are a few different reasons she was determined to be non-kosher, but it ended up with her consuming baby blood. Or Lamia is a person, a Greek, it's a Greek myth about Hera killing Lamia's children by Zeus. So she starts feeding on other children. The Strix, Makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, revenge, haha. Mm-hmm. There's the Strix, Striga, Strigu, or Struziga. Those are Eastern European vampires. And they're most in line with our vampiric myths, including Dracula and even Nosferatu and things like that. The Vitalis, those are ghouls that possess corpses. They're Indian, as in the country India, in origin. They hang upside down in cremation grounds and cemeteries from trees, kind of like bats. There's the Uvertok or Avertok. It's an Irish myth of a flesh-eating undead dwarf who was just too cruel to stay dead. <laughs> they killed him three or four times in this myth, and they kept burying him, head up, and he would rise from the dead and make everybody miserable, and then they buried him head down, and he stopped rising from the dead. Yeah. There's the Ramanga from Madagascar. This is a very interesting one. It's a living vampire. It's a person who is, her, their responsibility is to consume the nail clippings and spilled blood from, say, a surgery from royalty so that those things don't get wasted. It reminds me a bit of a sin eater. I don't know if you're familiar with that practice. I'm extremely familiar with it, yes. It reminds me a little bit of a sin eater as a behavior. And they're not really, they're not necessarily, say, vengeful, but I thought it was, it's like revenant adjacent and very interesting. That's so interesting. But only the nail clippings and the blood? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, but only of royalty. Yeah, so it's specific people whose nail clippings and spilled blood should not go to waste, basically, is I think the point. Huh. There's the Adze. This is a Togo and Ghana myth, I guess. A revenant that turns into a firefly and consumes flesh and spreads malaria. So they live as a regular person during the day and at night turn into a firefly and spread malaria. There's the Obayifo. Apologies again if I'm not pronouncing these correctly. A West African myth of turning into a ball of light to attack victims. They would destroy crops and consume children's blood. The Impundulu, which is from the Cape of Africa, so the southern tip of Africa, is a witch's familiar. They must be kept well-fed or they'll turn on the witch, and they feed on humans and cattle, and the witch will use them for vengeance on specific people. And that's very similar to how early zombie 
myths arose. And some of them, I mean, it's an, we'll go into zombies. That's my last thing that I cover. In the Caribbean and in various different islands on the Caribbean, there are different names for sort of the same phenomenon. It can be the Sokoyan, the Olehige, the Lugaru, Asema or Hag, an old woman by day, a fireball that sucks blood by night. Which oh, is okay. So it seems like it's related to the South African, was the Ipandulu? The uh, Obaifo. The Ipandulu Obaifo. is the South African one. The Obaifo is the one that turns into a ball of light. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So it seems like those would be related and that would make sense from um, the slave trade of the um, West African and African traditions moving into the Caribbean islands. Exactly. It's a mix of West African and French beliefs. Mm-hmm. Okay. The victim can then become another blood eater or die. The old woman trades victims' blood for evil powers. Uh, rice distracts them, and they must count the rice if they have rice thrown at them. And to become that ball of light, they shed their skin. And if you put salt and the skin into a mortar and grind it down, you will kill the various names, Sokoyon, Olehige, Lugaru, which is a sort of French Creole of werewolf, Sima or Hag. There's the Nachgerer, or Zerer, it's a German vampire. Uh, although the, the mythos of it may have been as widespread as Italy, they only transform after death, so it's, it's an animated corpse, basically. Suicides, or the first person to die from a plague, were typically considered prime candidates for Nachzererhood. They feed off of family and friends, and they may also devour themselves. And this makes sense as a component of a myth because poorly buried corpses are easily consumed by animals. So when you come back to the graveyard and your family's been dying of the plague and you find a disturbed grave where half the corpse is gone, you think, oh, they've been eating themselves and making our family miserable. So there you go. How awful to find something like that. Yeah. It's, uh, there are values to proper burials, both psychological and physical. Mm -hmm. And then my last vampiric example, and I know this is getting long, but I wanted to show that it truly is worldwide. So I wanted to do Americas and Europe, Asia, Africa, not a lot of information about Australasia, but maybe it's just something that I missed. Uh, the Xiangxi, which is a Chinese reanimated corpse, also known as a hopping vampire. They wore, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but Qing Dynasty garments. So they were sort of old-fashioned, similarly to how we would conceptualize European vampires as wearing 17th century garments or 18th century. They were known for their stiff movements and they absorbed living beings' chi or their life force. And they would rest in coffins or caves during the day. And now we can move on to ghosts. And I appreciate 
patients with this long list. There's the Tihuatitio, which is a Mexican or Aztec story of ghosts of women who died in childbirth who would steal children, cause madness and seizures, and they could be appeased with shrines and offerings. And this is still a pervasive um, belief as far as I know, too. There's something very related. Um, there's still um, stories about women who are like they're ghostly women and they will appear to people and they're basically women who are mourning the loss of their children. They're, they're generally like they died with their children or they died because their children died mm -hmm. and they haunt like crossroads in their heart roadways. And I believe it's related to this myth as well. Yeah. It's very common and people will leave um, flowers and have little shrines to them still. Yep. And it's, uh, I mean, childbearing is such a tremendously uncertain time. Aztec views on it were that it was its own form of battle and that women would capture the souls of their children to bring them into the world. So it makes I mean, a lot of sense that there would be an ongoing thought process of putting effort into not becoming one of these, basically, into being kind to souls that did become Tiwatitio. So you've had a kid, so you, you do you think it's like a, a battle? <laughs> I mean, I, I had a C-section, so I got scars, but I didn't have to labor. Yeah. Not that it wasn't, it didn't, you know, take effort to deal with a C-section or anything. So, I don't know, a lot of it is very mental. Right. So, participating in... Interactions with spirits makes a lot of sense because a lot of pregnancy is mental. Mm. There's also the Dybbuk, which is a Jewish dislocated soul. Dybbuks usually were not adherent to Torah law or were suicides. And so it was sort of a cautionary tale to prevent people from not adhering to Torah law or committing suicide was the... And then to get rid of a Dybbuk, you would have to help the Dybbuk meet a goal. Or there was one rabbi that suggested that if people still have Dybbuk issues, they should probably just consult a, psychi a psychologist, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. And that was, a, that was a 19th century suggestion. So it wasn't somebody being flip. Like nowadays, Dybbuks aren't a problem. It was someone quite a while back who just saw value in speaking to a psychologist. There are the Gingonger, or Gingonger, a Scandinavian, either a sinful soul, a violent death, or someone with unfinished tasks who dies. They terrorize family and friends. Uh, similar to a Draugr, or an Optraganger. Again, I apologize for these pronunciations. They are disease spreaders, and they will kill people through a dead man's pinch, which seems to be like a Vulcan death grip type deal. <laughs> Christian symbols and Christian paraphernalia will prevent the Gengonger from bothering you. Coffins may be carried three times around a churchyard or over a church wall instead of through the gate to confuse the corpses to keep them from rising again. And then there are these basically shrines called varps, which are small piles of stones and sticks and things 
that indicate a place where someone died. And it's considered a good practice to put a stone or two, add to the VARP when you pass one. It's not where they're buried, it's where they died, just to be clear. That's interesting. It seems like we have kind of a similar practice here where people die like on the highway. I notice people put like little shrines and stuff up. I yeah, wonder... or ghost bikes too. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Although I don't know that ghost bicyclists are wreaking vengeance. Maybe they are. There's Maybe that's why we leave their bike. Yeah. <laughs> There's Weidergonger, which are almost identical to Gengonger, but they're German. There are Meilings, which are unbaptized children that need a proper burial. This is a Finnish idea. They jump on people's back to be taken to the graveyard, and they can actually injure or squash the people that they jump on. In Japan, there are Onryo, which are a vengeful spirit causing disease, death, or possession. Exorcisms can be used to heal illnesses that are thought to be caused by Onryo. It may be Onryo or Onryo. I'm, again, I'm sorry. Basically, they're manifestations of grudges. It's kind of like what the film Juon or The Grudge is about. And they may also be mixed in with Mononoke, which are spirits that are more nature-based and supernatural. They're not specifically based on a human and so they are not technically revenants, but they can be involved. There's the pokong, which are Indonesian ghosts that are trapped in their burial shroud and they need it removed. And they'll hop around or fly or teleport to get people to remove their shroud. It's traditional to remove it 46.3 days after someone's death. I don't know why so specific, but maybe it's the time of day that it happens that's important. There are the, and this is similar the, to the but it's across the planet. Uh, the Pontianak, Churl, or Long Seer. They're women who died while pregnant or stillborn babies or women who died in childbirth, respectively. They are Malaysian, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, sort of general area ideas. They're women with pale black hair, red eyes, and bloodstained. They smell like plumeria. They cry like a baby during the full moon, and they dig their nails into a victim and devour their guts. They sniff out laundry hanging outside at night to find their victims. So it's very uncommon to leave laundry hanging outside in these areas. If this idea of this vengeful woman who died in childbirth, etc., is part of your culture. You can subdue them by plunging a nail into the hole at the nape of their neck or the top of their head. And then they become a beautiful or obedient wife is my understanding. Which is an, <laughs> okay. Yeah, which is a, quite a transformation. Huh. And then this is the last example I have, but it's animated corpses, and specifically zombies, which are a primarily Haitian phenomenon that have then extended into storytelling worldwide and interests worldwide. The revenants reanimated by a sorcerer, they can be a reanimated body or a zombie astral, which is a reanimated soul. Basically, a zombie is missing half itself. It's either a body with no soul or a soul with no body. A lot of this is tied into death ideas from Western Africa, 
due to slave trade, and it may also have Taino roots, which are uh, indigenous Haitians, indigenous Caribbean peoples that were often exterminated by colonists, unfortunately. Fear of zombification was used to prevent slave suicides, so it's another cautionary tale type of deal. Part of Haitian criminal code stated that someone put, if someone put another person in a coma and buried them, regardless of whether they arose later, it was considered murder. Zombification may have actually been a thing that's done to people. It may be caused by puffer fish toxin, datura, or other deliriums. There's also rumors of the sort of use of a part of a recently deceased child's brain by the sorcerer. They may be social manifestations of schizophrenia and catatonia, which makes a lot of sense when you think about how zombies are purported to move and behave and not react to stimulus, etc. There's also the sort of thought process that some mentally ill homeless people are taken in by families that have recently lost family members and are assumed to be the zombified lost relation. So it can be part of a grieving process for a family to take people who are not well mentally and having a hard time find, you know, integrating into society in a way that allows them to have a place to live and then be integrated into society through the assumption that they are zombies and that these people who have recently lost a family member miss the family member and thus sort of adopt this person. Huh, that's interesting. So I haven't really been focusing a ton on where revenants go, but primarily what they do is they come back and bother people until people can get rid of them. It's the long, long story short. <laughs> there are, and my husband brought this up, and I didn't do a ton of research into it, but there are sort of real-life Western revenants in people who have vengeful last will and testaments. There are people that will disinherit family members, that will intentionally leave their worldly goods to a pet instead of their families, understanding that it will it be an insult to their families. There are last will and testaments that involve, if you fulfill this parameter, such as living with someone you don't like, or keeping your temper, or all sorts of other stuff, if you do that, then you can have this stuff. And if you don't do it, then you can't have my possessions. So it's a way of controlling the living and harassing them that some people utilize, even if they don't believe in anything supernatural. That's an interesting way to think about it. And it's definitely a vengeful kind of a thing. Oh, absolutely. And they're dead. And they're coming back from the dead to tell you you're worthless. Right. <laughs> wow. So yeah, that's where revenants go. They come back until you get rid of them. <laughs> Unless you prevent them. <laughs> they come back until you get rid of them. Yep. I I love the troll story that like he kept was he a, he was someone with dwarfism? Yes. 
Okay. He was someone with dwarfism that was angry and kept coming back until they buried him upside down? Yep. Wow. Too mean to die. You know, we talk about that. I've talked about that before. It seems like... It seems like the nicest people die early, and then, like, there's so many just mean, cantankerous um, older people that are, like, in their 90s. Oh, yeah. Hatefulness sustains them. (laughs) It's like Mr. Burns on The Simpsons. He's held together by diseases. (laughs) Oh, I remember that. Did you ever see that episode where, like, he went to the doctor? Well, you have everything. Yep. And if we cure any of it, you will die. Exactly. I do remember that episode. (laughs) That's actually a good segue into your topic. I know. I'm going to talk about viruses and uh, not even a little part of it, like 75% of it is because I was ridiculously sick last week. Yeah, it, it was not pleasant and I had I had a virus and it was not the flu virus, but as my the doctors told me um, when I went to the ER was that they, they pretty much told me like, well, there's a lot of viruses that can infect you that are not the flu that act like the flu. I was like, oh, well, that's pleasant. <laughs> Good to know, because I pretty um, religiously get a flu shot. What, what are viruses? Do you know what viruses are, Emily? I do. Loosely. Yeah. So very simply, they're just packets of information to replicate themselves. They're protein, in, in the case of viruses that can infect animals um, instead of can infect plants, because there are viruses that can infect plants, but they're different than mammal viruses or viruses that infect animals. They're basically protein casings with DNA and RNA in them. Um, They can't replicate themselves. They actually need a healthy to infect a healthy cell um, into replicating itself over and over. So because of this and because of a few other reasons, they're not considered alive, though we've gone back and forth on that a few times, whether viruses are actually life. They are complex and they can replicate with a living cell, but they can't sustain their own homeostasis, and they're kind of a gray area between chemistry and life, Um, so generally they're not considered alive. They were discovered in the early 1900s. Actually, uh, Walter Reed, I believe, was studying the transition, the transmission of diseases through sap in plants, so he was studying plants, and he found that the disease could travel through the through the sap of the plants, but when he tried to culture it in the lab, couldn't culture anything like you can bacteria. So by themselves, they're inert until they infect a cell. They're basically just replication machines. The, it hijacks the cell. A virus has like little knobby cells all around them, and there's all kinds of different um, shapes of different viruses, depending on what virus it is and what kind of animal it will it can infect because there's hundreds of thousands of different viruses around us but only a few of them are able of transmitting to humans so there are not many that can cross over there's a few examples like SARS that started in chickens I think yeah um, and HIV of course started in the 
primates and moved over. But generally, they don't hop over. Like, you're not likely to get a giraffe virus from your pet giraffe or <laughs> if you have a pet <laughs> giraffe. Um, but viruses have these little knobby cells on the outside, and they attach to your cells, and they trick your cell into taking it in. And then once the virus gets in, it kind of explodes out. Um, it enters your cell and then tricks the nucleus of your cell to start making copies of the virus. So it, it's taking like the ribosomes in your cell and using it to make more protein so that it can make more copies of the virus. And the virus replication process um, can either destroy the cell and the viruses basically explode out of it, or it can kind of keep the cell around um, and make the cell keep making more of it. And then the infected cell replicates itself with the faulty DNA and then you have all these cells full of the virus and then you're infected with the virus. So they're, they're pretty complex and we, we think that viruses are, they, they go back and forth on this. They either say that viruses came before unicellular organisms or viruses and unicellular organisms is, existed together and actually are the reason why there's complex organisms like us because a lot of our DNA is actually from junk viruses, which I found very fascinating. Oh. Yeah, so they think that a major cause of the evolution is because of viruses, which is fascinating. So. Huh. Even though viruses are scary and can cause a lot of human diseases, um, we owe a lot of evolution, it seems, to viruses. So a lot of, they do cause a lot of human diseases. Uh, I'm going to name a few and you guys, you will find them familiar. There's smallpox, which we pretty much eradicated through vaccination. Um, the common cold and the flu. The reason why we don't have vaccinations for the common cold is because they evolve so quickly and can jump so fast. And they're, they're relatively short-lived, but they evolve very fast. There's measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, and shingles. Chicken pox is special because chicken pox actually causes shingles. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ones, I think the other one is the Epstein-Barr virus. I I'm think so, sure. yeah. Yeah. So chicken pox is interesting because even after your body is fought it off, it can live in your nerve cells and kind of be dormant until it is triggered again, usually when you're older and you contact, contract shingles, which are not fun and can be very painful. But that is just from an old chicken pox virus that you probably had when you were a kid. Hepatitis. Um, certain types of hepatitis can be caused by human disease, human viruses. Herpes and cold sores, again, herpes is another one of those that um, it infects your body. Um, you might not have any symptoms of it, and then it'll just live in your cells. Polio, which we've eradicated, thanks to vaccination. Rabies also that you mentioned earlier, that's a virus. Ebola and Hanta. We mentioned HIV and SARS, I mentioned, and then dengue fever, I had no idea was a virus. So how they spread really depends on the virus. Viruses like the cold are spread by surfaces 
um, with the virus on it. Um, you cough and sneeze around someone, you're snotty and you're mucousy. Um, in the case of rabies, the saliva actually, when when you when something contracts rabies, their brain inflames. They get a, a brain inflammation. Their brain cells they get aggressive. They get afraid of water, so they get dehydrated. But they're also salivating. So they're aggressive and they're salivating. And they're more likely to bite. And that's how rabies can be transmitted. And you can also, it can be transmitted like just through the, the mucous membranes and stuff as well, as far as I read. So when you contract a virus, generally the immune system keeps these in check by sending um, macrophages that search for and destroy the infected cells. With viruses like the flu and the common cold, the symptoms that you experience like a cough, a sore throat, body aches and fever are actually all symptoms of your immune system using your body to fight the virus off. So it's trying to get rid of the virus and you might get a fever and it'll heat your body up to kind of kill, to kill the virus, it's trying to kill the virus. And also the virus can disrupt regular cell processes. So maybe that runny nose, your, your body's just trying to slough off all the nastiness that, that's coming out, the virus-infected cells. And of course, we have to mention sometimes people's immune systems go haywire and they start attacking their own cells and you're not necessarily infected with the virus, but your body is starting to attack like your own organs and stuff. And um, that's when the immune system goes kind of haywire. That was an aside, but I wanted to mention it that people are not necessarily sick with a virus. Sometimes their bodies just kind of freak out. So where do viruses go? Once the body has recognized that it is infected, the immune system figures it out. It warns the other cells that then start making antibodies to the virus. The antibodies are ejected from B cells, which are um, one of the lymphocytes. It's a immune system cell and they go to war with the virus. The virus is then broken up by the T cells, the T lymphocytes, and the pieces of the virus can either be recycled for energy. So it will actually use pieces of protein from the virus to fuel itself to kill the rest of the, of the infection, which I thought was amazing. Like it's just recycling. Super um, efficient. Yes. And so viruses like the common cold, the, the rest of the pieces of it will just be excreted out of your body through the waste system, through sweating, you know, going to the bathroom, whatever. Like I said earlier, some viruses remain dormant, like the chicken pox virus stays in your nerve cells and that lay dormant and can cause shingles. There's a bunch of other ones that can kind of lay dormant and, and may cause problems later. They may not. You just never know. But generally, it doesn't happen. The most effective way to fight viruses are to prevent them in the first place and to use vaccines. So vaccines are a weakened form of the virus generally. They're usually dead. They contain the viral protein antigen in them. So you're, they go into your body. Your body says, oh, it's an antigen. And then it kind of puts it in it, your immune system puts it in the library of things it's encountered. So when you encounter it, it says, oh, I know this. And so it gets rid of it as soon as it comes in. 
we've, I think we've gotten rid of measles for the most part, 97% reduction in the incidence of measles in the U.S., but because um, people are not vaccinating their children are immune, are herd immunity. So a herd immunity is generally when like 92 to 95% of people receive the vaccine. That means the people who can't get vaccinated and there are people who can't be vaccinated that they're protected too because everyone else around them is vaccinated. So they're unlikely to get the virus because everyone else around them can't get it because they've been vaccinating. So because more and more people are not vaccinating either their children or have decided not to vaccinate themselves, even though they can be vaccinated, there are some things that are coming back, like measles was one of them that I think in some parts of the U.S. is kind of making a comeback. And since viruses can evolve very quickly, this is not good news. So we don't want pe- things to jump around and, and infect people and, and get more, more information on us and then become like a super strain. So yeah, the best way to prevent a virus is to not get it in the first place and be vaccinated. However, if you do get a virus and your body fights it off, it eats it and that's where they go. Yeah, there's a massive measles outbreak in New York City and in uh, Metro Detroit right now. Oh, is there? Yeah. It's so bad because we pretty much got got most of it, like, pretty much eradicated it until a few years ago. Yep. This is a pro-vaccine podcast, folks. <laughs> Apparently we are. I mean... I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like tiptoe around it. I mean, I think the best thing to do is to get vaccinated if you can. I yeah. mean, of course, there are people who cannot get vaccinated. Those oh, absolutely. Exist. But for the most part, if you can get vaccinated, you totally should. You might be protecting like some frail child who has leukemia who can't get vaccinated when you yourself or your children get vaccinated, yep. you know? And it's nice not to be sick, (laughs) as I can tell you from being ridiculously sick last week. Yeah, and I'm currently sick, as our listeners probably have realized by now. Yeah, I think it's just absolutely amazing that our body cannibalizes them and uses, uses some of the protein for energy. I think that's cool. That's that's the reuse project for this week. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Old viruses. So, did you ever see the movie The Revenant? I have not seen that movie. I've heard good things. I would like to see it, but uh, it was not a time in my life where seeing that movie in the theaters was a good idea. I was going through some stuff. Okay. So, So that's another, like, he was alive, but he was, like, refused to die. Yeah, just hell-bent, basically. Yeah, he was, he was gonna get done, and as soon as he was done with what his, his task was, he was like, okay, and he died. But, like, people thought they left him for dead in part of the movie, like, because he was so bad off. Oh, yeah. And I mean, basically, he came back from the dead and got revenge. Exactly. It's pretty, it's a pretty gruesome movie. And it, um, I would classify it as a rated R plus. 
Like, it is ridiculously violent. Wow. It is not a children's movie at all. Unless, you know, you're one of the parents who's like, this is ridiculously violent. (laughs) (laughs) I should track that down. Like, it's brutal, brutally violent. Well, I was going to say that I have a reuse project, but if you have something else. No, I don't. Go ahead. Well, I had Sarah and her husband over for a snack a couple weeks ago. And I made a cake out of melted ice cream. Yay! I did not invent this, obviously. There's a cookbook author named Anne Byrne who wrote all the Cake Mix Doctor books. And she's written several books since about the American history of cake and the American history of cookies. They're great books. And one thing that people have been doing for quite a while is melting a pint of ice cream and then mixing it with a box of cake mix. Now, I've done this before and I didn't quite like how it worked out. So I just made a cake basically and replaced all the sugar and dairy in the cake with ice cream. And it was fabulous. And it used up ice cream that I wasn't going to eat. You know, it was a half of a larger tub of ice cream. So it was a great reuse project because I didn't have to throw away food. And I got to have friends over. It was really good, too. Yeah. What did you ice it with? Was it like a cream cheese icing? It was an American-style buttercream. And then later you told us that it was a melted ice cream cake. And I was like, that is genius. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you liked it. I liked it too. It's nice because it's not as sweet because you're replacing sugar with something that while it's sugary with all the other cake ingredients and no other sugar, the cake's not too sweet. So American buttercream is notorious for being just crazy sweet. And so it balances it out, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, I melted, so. melted ice cream cake. I'll post a recipe on our website. Yay! So that's where revenants go. And, and that's where viruses go. And revenants were usually used as a theory for why viruses were a thing. I like how they fit together. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty perfect. It's like a virus <laughs> fitting its RNA into a cell. Ha 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 ha. Fitting a revenant into a cell. Yeah. <laughs>